You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. Good morning, everyone. I'm going to be reading Genesis chapter 15. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram continued, look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars. If you are able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? He said to him, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all these to him, cut them in half, and laid the pieces opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them, and will be enslaved and oppressed." However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Kadmazites, Hethites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Amen. You can have a seat. Thank you, Tiffany. Beautiful to hear the scriptures being read out loud in our service, and Uh, As we're in Genesis 15 now, we're going through this series, looking at the life of this, probably one of the most prominent characters in the scriptures, this man named Abraham, in many ways a father of faith. And we're looking at the description of what faith looks like through the lived out experience of this guy. And um, I am a, a, well, I used to be better at it. I still try to do it, but I'm a journaler. I don't know if any of you journal through, uh, just through your journey. I would encourage you to do so if you, if you don't. It's just a great spiritual practice. Um, and, you know, one of the things about journaling is it, it gives you a way to be able to reflect and look back on the ways that you're just living life and obviously how God is also working in those things. And I, as we're looking at the series through uh, the life of Abraham, Part of me like, can't help wonder, what would it look like if he was a journaler? Like, some of the different things, like, I, the God of the universe called me today. He call, you will not believe the mission he's given to our family. Oh, man, I cannot believe what I did to my wife. <laughs> That's a long entry there, right? Or, whoa! 
me and a few hundred of my closest pals, we went to go rescue Lot against all of these armies. It was unbelievable. Like, like it, in a sense, it would have been unbelievable if you read that journal. You would have been thinking, are we talking about like many different characters? Or talking about someone with, um, you know, maybe uh, issues of reality? Because it sounds like so many different people captured in this one person's life. And I know when I look at my journals, I'm thinking, um, did someone like go into my body and write this? Because I don't remember this happening. This was like crazy. And in a way, that's really the whole series. You're going to notice that. Abraham's a father of faith. But yo, our boy got problems. He got celebrations. A lot of ups, but also a lot of downs. But really, that's what the journey of faith is. And we're continuing that today. And really, um, kind of a simple, but I hope for for some of us, uh, a way for us to be in a place to see God more is, how do we trust the Lord's promises to follow him? Because he's called us to commit our lives to him, to trust him in faith. How do we do that when that journey often feels like it takes us through the dark? When where he's called us to, it's kind of a scary, unknown, dark, hard place. I know that's been part of my walk, and I'm hoping that the Lord speaks to us in that. So join me as we uh, ask the Spirit to guide us in this time. Holy Spirit, we do ask your help to take these words. And otherwise, Lord, this is just a lot of talk, maybe some information, maybe it's even helpful. But Lord, we ask that your spirit, you do something with this where simple words become an actual introduction to help us to know the God of the universe who desires to meet with us. But Lord, I particularly want to pray for any in this room, and I, I, I'm sure some of us are there where life has been hard. We've got a lot of questions. And we just need to know you're there. So Holy Spirit, would you allow our hearts to be in a place to be able to meet you in that way? Thank you for your presence in this room, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I think to grasp a little of what we're looking at today, it's helpful to understand what's come before. And if you're here for the sermon, hopefully it is not totally new. But we remember back a couple of chapters in, in chapter 12, we read the description of how God chose and called Abram. And again, in case this is new to you, the man we know him as Abraham, his name used to be Abram. But it starts, it says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So this man, Abram, if we remember, he's picked by God out of everyone to be blessed, but also to be a blessing, um, to be really the agent of God's rescue plan. His redemption for the entire world would come from this simple guy. There's really no rationale to why Abram is chosen, He's, he's from a family that doesn't worship God. And some of us, if we don't have that like God-worshiping lineage, that's a lot of good news for us. We're not beyond God's plans because that's where Abram was. But God has made a promise through Abe that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. There would be a ripple effect. And here's the thing. These blessings would be understand in, in, understood in part as coming through his offspring. Your descendants, and this is something repeated throughout the promises. But by the time we in Genesis 15, we got a little bit of a problem. There's a little bit, but there's a problem here. Look at the beginning of chapter 15. 
After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. Just for a second there, I find much hope in the fact that God says, don't be afraid. What does that mean? He recognizes he's afraid. And it's okay to have fear in life. And God's not like, come on, man up. I mean, he's like, it's cool. You know, I'll, I'll be there for you. But look what happens. Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? We can assume that part of Abram's fear is um, this whole promise, blessing to be blessed, to ble- it doesn't seem like it's happening. Abram continued, look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born of my house will be my heir. So again, the promise that God has given is to come through Abram's descendants, but Abe and his wife Sarai, eventually should be known as Sarah, they're still childless. And just for, in case we need a timeline here, it's not like Abe is being a little whiner and God gave him this promise like two weeks ago and God still hasn't, like, what's wrong with you, God? It, Abraham was 75 when God first gave him this promise. His wife, I mean, she was spring chicken. She was a little younger, 10 years younger than him. But at this point, he's probably around 86. Most scholars say it's been about 11 years since they originally received this promise. And for some of you in this room, that's like more than your whole life, right? That's, That's like a significant amount of time. So in the frailty of Abram's humanity, and I totally get it, I'm there with him, he wonders out loud to God in verses 2 and 3. I mean, he's kind of calling God out, isn't he? That's that's what he's doing, maybe a little passive-aggressively, but he's like, you haven't given me an heir. It's not my fault, God. I received your promises wholeheartedly. I've been living this out for like two chapters now. You haven't done your part. I got no heir. My wife's not pregnant. And it it seems like he is just having a hard time of making sense of things based on what's in reality going on around him. And again, I totally get it. And maybe some of you can also identify with Abe. He's just trying to, like, if, if God, maybe, like, maybe I heard God wrong. So what do I need to do? Maybe, oh, maybe this is an exercise where God is waiting for me to do something and not just be passive. Okay, maybe the child, maybe, maybe let's not be technical here. Oh, okay, I'm going to have a child through my slave heir. That'll be the child. Because God, I mean, you're not delivering. I, maybe I had a shred of thought that me and my, like, my beautiful but a little getting in age wife, we're going to have, oh, maybe I just misunderstood. I didn't understand the prophecy. So I'll make a solution here, God. Cool? I mean... Again, he's kind of calling God out. He's just having a hard time trusting God's plans and questions as he navigates what seems to be happening around him. And just, I think a note for us that we can pull out of this is, um, again, I don't know all of your background, what families you come from, what churches, what traditions, but I think sometimes in the larger Christian tradition, if we're not careful, there can be this discouragement from asking questions of faith. Like somehow, if we ask questions or certain things, um, we're demonstrating like a fragile faith or that we're not really mature. But I I just want to, and at least for our church, put this out for you. There's freedom here to express our fears. 
our doubts. God is not so petty. He not so small that he can't handle your fears and your doubts and your questions. If he was, yo, I'm not going to follow a God like that. I would actually suggest some of our greatest um, growth in our relation with God actually occurs in those moments where we engage with the things that are revealed, that are really pain points, that are really hard, like real matters of life. Because we can come in here and do all our systematic theology and have real nice answers. What do you do when life hits you in the face and it keeps punching you? Like, what do you do in those moments where all of your theology, all of your doctrinal expertise, it doesn't really help all that much and you still got to live with what you got. But when we have the freedom to know that our God is big and strong and this is all his, we can bring our questions honestly to him and allow God to speak to us. I, I want to qualify that saying it doesn't always mean that there are answers you will understand because you're not God. You're like me, human, right? With all of our limitations. God will give you answers. You might not always recognize it, or even if you recognize it, you might not always like it. Because you, again, you are not God. But I, what I'm saying is there's something I think to be found in engaging the full wholeness of our emotions as we bring ourselves to the Lord. And God can take it. God can handle it. Maybe there's some people in life that can't handle the full range of your emotions. Don't share it all with them then, but God can. Because like we see with Abe, um, we see that God doesn't seem to beat him down for his unbelief here. You calling me out? You seriously, Abe? You calling me out? I didn't play my part? I mean, God doesn't respond maybe the way we think, but let's see what happens. Verse four, now the word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. God just wanting to make this crystal clear what, what's gonna happen. He took him outside and said, look at the sky, count the stars. If you're able to count them, then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So God gives him this sign using nature, showing, demonstrating, nah, you didn't hear me wrong, Abe. This is actually going to happen. You, you old body and your beautiful wife, you are going to have these kids and that's where my promise is going to come from, from your frail body that you think is beyond your uh, prime. That's where all this is going to happen. You, your offspring will be as numerous as all the stars you can see in the sky. And as part of the promise, God also tells Abe, it's also going to include all the land that I've promised you. You're going to acquire all of this land. This will be part of your inheritance. But that part of the promise then, it brings uh, another question of doubt from Abe in verse 8, as you see. But he said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? And there's a part, maybe because I'm like a, a schmo when it comes to faith, I kind of appreciate that verse 6. Abraham believed and he credited to him as righteous, as righteous. But then he goes right back into, my Lord, how is this? Like, it's like back and forth, right? I, I think I like that because that, I feel like I'm looking in the mirror. <laughs> One second, Lord of Lords, it's all. And then next, oh, is there even a God? Some of our heroes of faith, right? But again, God doesn't chastise Abe. 
Like, you, you whiner? How many times do I got to rescue you? How many times do I got to demonstrate? He doesn't do that. But he answers again with a visual demonstration. Verse 9. He said to him, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all these to him, cut them in half, and laid the pieces opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds in half. One day, if I ever preached this again, I would love to have like a visual demonstration of the animals. I know some of you would just boycott our church and cancel us, so I'm not doing that. Just I'm letting you see inside my mind. Maybe I'll get some Legos, right? Birds of prey came down in the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and the darkness descended on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions." But you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. If this were a movie, I mean, we would be seeing Abram go into this dream sequence. It's like a scary dream, dark, heavy. It's described as a disturbing set of images for Abe as God describes really the future. Like you are going to have a lot of offspring. Like this promise is going to happen um, and you're going to get the land. They are going to come back and, and claim this land as the promise. But it's also going to be really hard. Your descendants, I mean, you're not going to be around to see it, but they will be enslaved. They will be treated as less than human. They will be oppressed. They will experience hardship because of this family they belong to. And God is just laying out the next hundreds and hundreds of years, letting Abram know what is to come as part of the fulfillment of this promise. That, yeah, all the stars in the sky, all the land, it's all part of what I'm going to give, but it's also going to involve some dark times. And obviously, I think we can assume that God is, is meeting Abram here for his own benefit. And this encounter, it's, it's for him to help him in his lack of faith and in his fear, whether this is all going to happen or not. But I believe this is also for other recipients to come. Like fast forward hundreds of years in the future. Imagine someone is writing these things down. And, you know, we would believe that the first books of the scriptures, they were written by this man named Moses. So it was recorded, but it was stories that were told generation after generation, passed from family, family, daddy and mommy to kid down through generations, telling of the faithfulness and the story of this Yahweh God. And you, you, you picture hundreds of years in the future, these Israelites have gone through like torment and pain and oppression and slavery and just been worked to death often at times, but then they've been freed in miraculous ways, but now they're walking in the desert and they're hungry and they're thirsty and they're scared and life, it doesn't even seem as good as it was back in slavery times. And they're doubting and they're questioning. And they're like, what the heck is going on? This is not what I signed up for. And maybe, just maybe, 
Maybe they encounter situations that say, where is God? And if he's here, why is he so cruel and absent? Why is he so powerless? Does he even give a darn? Does he care? But then you remember the stories told generation after generation, passed down in family, good night stories told the kids to, even in the desert, remember the one who walks with them, Yahweh, the Lord. Your people shield, as he told Abram. And, and you even hear of this encounter that your great, 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 great granddaddy Abram had long ago, where you even hear these stories that this time of enslavement and mistreatment and hardship and, and hundreds of years is that it was actually known long before it was even happening. Like this did not catch God off guard. He was not, oh, what are these Egyptians? I didn't know. He, he knew all this would be part of the promise. And here's the thing. So in describing the future in this way, God is a God, he's allowing a deeper knowledge of his promises. There's some sense of real assurance there that things are not happening out of God's control. He knows absolutely what's happening. And God's promises to Abe, though, they're not just mere offerings of joyful blessings. I mean, there's a lot of joy, there's a lot of blessings. But what it's saying is that covenant with God, relation with God, it will even allow for pain and suffering. that will most likely, as it would probably do for us, for Israel, cause them to cry out, where is God? Where is he in this darkness? And if he's even there, how can he just watch his children suffer like this? And there's way more here than one sermon can cover, right? Like, how is God good when there's suffering, when there's pain? That's a lot. That's a lot there. But I think one thing we can take part is, it's not that God is unable. It's not that he doesn't see, that that he doesn't know. But in this dream to Abe, what God is showing is that though times may be difficult, through it all, God has not forgotten his people. They are still known by him. And I'm going to guess even the nations may ridicule and doubt and and in scorn. And maybe maybe they're going to make fun of Israel. But God is letting his people know, um, I'm always there with you. And you will receive your promises of these blessings as I've given. You will get it. But there's going to also be pain. And just as we, as we think about our own lives here, maybe some of us even in this room, we can identify with times of struggle. Um, maybe some of us, maybe you're going through it right now. It is just really hard. It's hard to even come to church because for a lot of us, when we think of church, we think of that place where we got to kind of like put on smiley, happy face. And, and, you know, when the peppy song, like really get into rhythm and jumping around and, you know, people are saying, how you doing? Oh, brother, I am just doing so good in the grace of the Lord and like weird stuff. But we've got to be able to own that sometimes, I would suggest a lot of times, Life is just full of struggle. 
full of pain. I mean, maybe for some of us, it's emotional, relational, physical, financial, questions about the future that just seem overwhelming. And maybe we can even find ourselves in a place where we almost literally hear our situations mocking us. Where's your faithful God now? Where is this God who's always said, I will never leave you or forsake you, that you're mine, that I, I love you, that I care for you. I know, oh, where's that God now? Um, I would suggest that maybe part of that struggle is that we live in a culture where I think that sometimes we make certain expectations for God that scripture doesn't make itself. You know, sometimes we expect things from God that he hasn't even said himself. Um, and part of that, I think, being the church in America, we have to be mindful that we don't approach God as if he exists more for us than us for him. Like, because if we're not careful, and even if you watch some of these really nice television shows about God, you can get this idea that ultimately God has made everything and he's given, showed himself so that we can have a better life now so that you can have your purpose fulfilled tomorrow. That God is here ultimately like a big genie and just rub his belly in the right way in the form of prayers and your offerings and he'll give you what you want or, and deserve. And I, I want to be really clear. Um, I'm not suggesting that God doesn't bless. We, we see here clearly God is a God of blessing or that he doesn't give good gifts. We believe that God, every good and perfect gift is from, from the Lord above. Um, if we believe the Bible, God is a good father. He's a giver of all good gifts. So be lavish in, in approaching him with what you want. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, some of us probably live in too much shame. I know I got my Asian shame where I don't feel I'm ever allowed to ask what I really want. And I just get all passive aggressive about it because I still want it. <laughs> some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? It's appropriate to ask for what we want from the Lord and we give thanks for his blessings as he provides for our enjoyment. I don't know if you've ever heard this in church before. God does like it when we're living in joy. He's not like looking for us to be like uh, praying 23 hours a day and the other hour fasting, like, you know, and, and like be miserable and hate life because we love God so much. That doesn't honor the Lord. He wants us to be full of delight and joy in all our emotions. Here's the challenge, though, is if we make God merely into provider of good things, he's no longer God. That's like Santa Claus. That's like a glorified big sugar daddy who's just there to kind of give us what we want better than anyone else will because he's God. But the picture of the Lord that we have from Scripture is it's, 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 that's not really in line. But I mean, this is not on the screen, but uh, verses I often come to, Isaiah 48, verse 10, where it says, Look, this is the Lord speaking, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. No one putting that on a coffee mug at Lifeway, right? <laughs> As you drink, I'm being burned in the furnace of affliction. I mean, no one, that's not on your top list of like inspirational day. I will act for my own sake, indeed my own, for how can be defiled. I will not give my glory to another. Sometimes you can tell the depth of your the theological understanding and knowledge by how things like that rattle you. 
God sounds really self-centered. He sounds like he's just about himself. He actually, when you read the scriptures, God is all for his glory. He's all for his namesake. He's all for the glory of his renown. Those are actually very biblical ideas that all things happen for the fame of God's own name and reputation. And here's the thing. You want to know how joy is found? When we order our lives to that purpose, when we center ourselves around the idea that's all about God, it's all about making his name great, when we live our lives according to that, there is great joy and purpose to be found. I would suggest that's actually where contentment is found. Life starts to make sense. We recognize that as pretty as you all are, as cute as you all are, you are not meant to be the main character of your own story. You are a supporting character with the main headliner. Like when the music turns on for the show, God is the one who gets that first name. That's him. You are supporting, and you you can be a real good supporting character. But when we get that twisted, that's when we start getting grumbling, a little entitled, a little bitter. But God is glorified when you and I, we find that our ultimate purpose in following God and making much of him. That God receives more fame when your life is transformed. That's why we love talking about transformation, our church, because the more your life starts to reflect Christ, the more God gets renown. And there's joy to be found in that space. But here's the, here's the clincher. Like, likely, there will most likely be some pain in midst of that. The process of being transformed more and more into Christ's image, there will most likely be some pain because one of the most powerfully impactful ways that we are transformed is through our times of struggle. There's just no getting around that. Here's the thing, though. Our world... And sometimes even the church, maybe even our church, sometimes our world tells us if, that, if there is struggle in your life, something must be wrong. If there is hardship in your life, you must be doing something incorrect. That if you are somehow suffering, um, it must be your fault and you're not obeying God. And I, I, let me be crystal clear on that because I don't want people to take a soundbite on that saying I'm advocating some kind of like uh, suffering theology. I'm not advocating that we intentionally look for struggle. We're not dumb. I, uh, I'll speak. I don't want to be dumb, right? We are not masochistic people who believe that somehow if we hurt ourselves, we're closer to God. If you ever hear a Bible teacher teach you that, um, you 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 got to read that more carefully, right? Here's what I'm saying. If you do find yourself in times of struggle, if you are walking in the dryness of desert times, if you are sitting in the despair of betrayal and loneliness, if you are crippled under the sting of failure, if you are just saddened, like deeply, deeply grieved by the ache of expectations that are not met in life, don't automatically think that you have done something wrong and find a way to medicate yourself. And by medicate, I mean like, like physical medications to take away the pain, but also medicate like, well, I'm just going to work harder. I'll just be better at my job. I'll prove my, I, I'll just distract myself enough. Be careful not to just medicate away from maybe some of the things that the Lord is trying to reveal 
through some of this pain. Because as hard as those seasons are, that's also where I believe we come to our deepest, most profound experience of the Lord. And life can be really hard. I know some of you, your stories, it's, it's, been, it's been a fight. And honestly, maybe some of you, if this is your first time here, don't worry, messages aren't always like this. Sometimes I really try to give you like a big hug from the stage, right? Part of me, honestly, I will, I, I'll be real honest. I want to just come and tell you, you know what? God doesn't want your life to be hard because he loves you so much. I would love to be able to say that. But I don't think that would be a complete message. I I honestly don't think that'd be very helpful because you'd be like, yo, you sold me a false bill of goods. I I do believe God wants to release you of your burden. I I do believe in case you don't think I believe this, he is a comforter to the brokenhearted. He is a healer of disease. I absolutely believe that. We should pray for that. We we should work for that even for others. we, We fully believe all of that. And he wants to give you himself as you fully depend on him as you're transformed. But transformation will involve some kind of struggle. Just to be crystal clear here, for some of us, I said it might not always be your fault. For, just to be really forthright, for some of us, the struggle that you may experience in life, it can be a result of unhealthy beliefs, destructive practices in your life, um, I think it would be kind of disingenuous to say, God, why are you punishing me with this hardship? And not acknowledge, you know, I might be living in some sin or practically not trusting him with certain beliefs or actions in my life. And and for you to just honestly, just acknowledge that you've got struggle and bring it to him. You don't have to fear him. But I also want to be clear that some of the pain that you may experience may be in no way connected to what you've done or not done. This might not make you give you much comfort for some of us when you want to know answers, but for some of us, the pain we experience is just part of being in a broken world. Some things happen that you just cannot wrap your finite mind around. And it's, it can be maddening, but sometimes acknowledging that, again, God hasn't promised beyond that. The world is broken and sometimes the world is just very hurtful and we medicate by putting all of these structures around to try to make it a little better and it does, including the church and there's the beauty of the church. But don't some of us experience kind of a low grade, it's always kind of sucks. <laughs> we, maybe we can edit that part out. Though. <laughs> like, even as you do everything you're supposed to do, it's kind of just like, bleh. It's no wonder then that things often seem like they just don't make sense. And we can even ask, where is God? Does he care about our lives? It's hard to figure out in all the real messiness of life. But look back at the chapter. Look what God does with Abram. Verse 17. When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hethites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. God is giving Abram a way to be able to know that promises of not just the generations, but especially the land 
will happen, will come through. And what we're seeing here, this is an ancient covenant practice where you would get these animals and you would cut them in half. And some of you are like, yo, they really non-PETA friendly. I mean, it's just the way of the world, right? You cut these different animals and they were laid out there, split in half. And you have this smoking fire pot. This is meant to be a manifestation of God. He's one of the parties involved in this covenant ceremony. It's, it's, it's like, if we think in modern terms, like a contract, an agreement, a relationship. And in human treaties of those days, both kings who were making an agreement together is not just a handshake deal. It's just not your word is your own. They would actually put into practice what they're saying they're agreeing to. So they would make an agreement in a situation like this with the animals cut in half by both passing together through the sacrifices. It was a sacrificial culture. They would walk through the sacrifices in effect to bind the agreement. That was their putting their signature down on this, on this covenant agreement by walking through together and in doing so as both kings, both parties to agreement are walking through together, what they are promising is, may this be done to me if I do not keep my oath and pledge. That's what they're saying. They're like, may I be treated like these animals that have been slaughtered and cut in half if I don't keep my end of this agreement. This was, I mean, they don't mess around back in those days, right? Like, you won't take me to court? You got to, I mean, they're like putting their life on the line, standing behind their commitment. Because a covenant It required both parties to be faithful to the end of the promise. That's what they're signifying here as they both walk through together. But in chapter 15, you noticed, right, what happens, right? This is a little different than a normal covenant agreement. It isn't God and Abram walking through to these animals together, right? They're not walking through to seal this covenant of God's promises, rather God in the form of the smoking fire pot goes through alone. It's very symbolic. It's very meaningful. What he's walking through alone in essence saying is, may I be cut like these animals to seal this deal. God is making that promise because our end of the deal, if this were a fair covenant agreement, is that as descendants of Abraham, we would be required to be faithful to God and love him and obey him alone. As he's given us everything, as he has given all of his blessings, what were we to do? Love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. Fully fulfill the law. Do everything on our end. But we haven't held up our end of the bargain, right? Even Abram couldn't have held up his end of the bargain. Let alone you and I. We're not even close. And guys, if you fast forward when we go to the cross then, we're seeing that God is faithful to his part of the covenant made that day with Abram. This in effect, the cross was the culmination of the promise made in places like this and throughout the scriptures. Because what it meant was that Jesus, as perfect, as innocent as he was, he was hung on a tree as a criminal. And he was cut up like those animals to prove God's faithfulness to this covenant relationship. Where we could not hold up our end of the bargain, God did, as he committed to. When he walked through those animals in the form of that smoking fire, but when he was saying, may I be cut like these animals if I do not hold up my end of this? And Jesus was. He was in his full promise and his love. 
And here's the thing. I mean, some of y'all, you'll heard so much about the cross, right? And you might think it's weird because we'll sing songs like, the beautiful cross, it's so sweet. And, and it doesn't help because we got these like gold, sweet, like sweet gold crosses on, or, like hanging from it. Like, it looks beautiful, right? But have you ever thought, why do we keep calling this cross beautiful? It's kind of grisly, kind of horrific. I mean, it seems like the furthest thing from beauty, but the thing is, I'm sure it didn't look that way to those who were there that day when they saw a cross because they just saw a murder scene. It was not beautiful. But we also know something today that the people there did not, that even the horror of the cross was a part of God's greater plan and purposes even as that day was awfully dark, literally, but spiritually. It was a dark day. And that's like so much of life, isn't it? Because I think Abraham and Sarah, I think they understood some of that darkness, some of that confusion that comes with trying to follow God and things not happening the way you think they would. Because we, we come to know and I'm, I'm, I'm giving it away, but it's all in the Bible, all open source. Go read it on your own, right? It's, it's okay. That we know that they even waited 25 years for their actual promise of their child to be born. Like many more years than even this Genesis 15 promise. They waited 25 years. And even if you're not good at math, you know that they were real wrinkled by that point. But God was still Faithful. But man, I would have, I would have maybe shuddered to read Abram's journal through those times, <laughs> through those 25 years. All right, day like 8,000 seconds. Where is God? <laughs> no kid. Okay, I, I'm going to try this other thing because I guess I maybe I misheard Genesis 15. I, I'll try. Nope, that wasn't it. A lot of pain, a lot of sorrow, a lot of relational brokenness. A lot of times where God didn't seem to be doing what he said he would be doing. And maybe you are in that space as well today. I always hope our church is a place where we can just be like butt honest, right? Um, maybe it's hard for some of us to recognize beauty amidst loss. It's hard to say God is beautiful when things just seem so broken when you have so much heartache? That, are you ever in that place? Some of these songs just feel really phony to try to sing because of what you're going through in life. Because if you're like me, you want answers to take away that hopelessness of the dark. You want God to just do something to make it better. Um, I found this this quote from this book by Tish Harrison Warren, her uh, really a wonderful book, Prayer in the Night. I know some of the women in our church read it together. Um, let me read this for us because I think she describes some of the good dynamic of what it means to be understanding God in the midst of pain. She writes, God himself took time to grieve. He is no stranger to the weight of heartbreak and horror, to the ache of swollen eyes that have cried so long they've run out of tears. He did not numb himself or downplay the losses. He never gave a pat answer. God was and remained shockingly emotionally alive. And really pay attention to this part because I, I thought this was just... 
The end of the Bible turns to the end of time and John describes a breathtaking moment when God will wipe away every tear from his people, people's eyes in Revelation 21. When we finally see God face to face, we will be made whole and there will be no more death or crying or pain. All things, things will be set right. But wait, not until we have one last long cry. Redemption itself does not skip over the darkness, but demands that every last tear run. Christians believe that a place of eternal joy not only exists, but is more real than the diminished place of sorrow and pain we now know. The image of God wiping away our tears could of course be a metaphor, a statement that all things will at last be well, but what if it's not strictly poetic language? What if, in the face of our maker, we get one last chance to honor all the losses this life has brought? What if we can stand before God someday and hear our, our life stories told for the first time accurately and in their entirety with all the twists and turns and meaning we couldn't follow when we lived through them? What if the story includes all the darkness of suffering, all the wounds we've received and given to others, all the horror of capital D, death, and we get to weep one last time with God himself? What if before we begin to live in a world where all things are made new, we weep with the one who alone is able to permanently wipe away our tears? And, and just, we want to be really clear. We're not a people who dwell in suffering. I don't think that's what Christians do. The Lord's promise is there is a day coming when there will be no more night. When I say night, I don't mean like cool nightclub night. I'm like saying night, darkness, pain. There will be no more night and all the scariness that can come with that. We get some glimpses of that now, and I do, again, think the church is part of that. Like the joy that we can experience one another. This is not just like more medicinal making up something to just kind of get. I believe this is real, and it gives us a real glimpse. But guys, in some sense, there's a reason why as good as the church can feel, as good as certain relationships, certain joys and pleasures, as good as it is sometimes, does, don't you feel like it feels like a little bit lacking still? It's not fully there. It's because it's not. It's giving us a glimpse to what is come when there will be no more shadow of that pain at all. But guys, until that time is known fully, trust in the comfort that this God will sit with you in the dark. Amen? I want to invite our music team to come up and lead us in a couple of songs to respond. And as they do so, can you stand with me? And we're going to have a time where we sing, we pray, and we have our table in the front, the Lord's Supper, where we remember, if we need a visual promise, we're not cutting up animals anymore because the great high priest, the lamb, as we heard last week, he was the great sacrifice. He was already torn so that we wouldn't have to have this animal thing happen over and over again. He was the great high priest, but also the lamb. And on that last supper that he shared with his followers, he was giving them how to remember that sacrifice. Every time you meet, that's why we take this seriously. Every time we gather, we're supposed to partake in the Lord's Supper if you are a child of God, if you follow him. 
I want to invite you to come up middle aisles, grab one of these, take it back around the back outside aisles and wait so we can take it all together. But before you rush up to just take it, pause in your circumstances right now. Are any of you sitting in that dark place? Has it been hard? Has it been something you can't even articulate to others, but you know it's there? If it is, I I hope that you don't feel our, our messages, well, just don't feel like that. Maybe God's great love for you is saying, yeah, it's real. That's, that's real, real. Sit in it, but know that you're not in it alone. Because there is one who had his very body ripped apart like those animals so that we could be made in the right relationship with this God who will go literally to all ends to make us his own. So sit on that. Maybe you need a minute to just before you even do this, sit on that and say, God, it's been hard. Whenever you're ready, you can come up, take one of these and bring it back. And let's sing. Let's pray. Maybe you can comfort those around you if you sense that that's what you need to do. But let's respond to the Lord.